Oh 
Good morning, church family. Uh, thankful for you and even the exchanges here this morning. Come on in. Just uh, delighted to, to, see, um, to see all of you and greetings to those who are at home and very much look forward to the day when we can all be together again. You know, I was reading some Karl Barth this week, the Swiss theologian. He said, the church is a crater formed by the word of God. And I think that's a very good way of thinking about what we're doing, that we're God's called out covenant community. And uh, we are distinct because of uh, what God has called us to do in his word. And he's building us up in his word. So think of it that way. We're a distinct community called to serve the real king, the Lord Jesus. Elder-led prayer, we've been having these uh, monthly uh, prayer meetings, which have gone very well. We've uh, switched the days of the week, so please note, a week from today, it's a Sunday evening, April 25th, 7 p.m. at the church. And uh, again, we'll pray for our nation, we'll pray for our region, and we'll pray for our church family. So that is Sunday evening, the 25th, 7 p.m. Week from today, also, we have an education fair. I'm delighted that of the three Christian schools in our area, uh, the, the headmasters, that is two headmasters and one headmistress, all are members of our church. So uh, we uh, love that. And so when you move into an area, you know about the public schools, but how do you know about the Christian schools? And so next week's an opportunity just to learn a bit about the Christian schools. Even if you're a person who says, you know, we're uh, for public education, uh, I think you'll. it might just be 
very interesting to you to think through that. And then immediately after the service, those three individuals, that is the two headmasters and the headmistress of the three Christian schools, will put on a presentation together about uh, just thinking through questions you would want to ask your kids uh, because we want to all take um, educating our children very seriously in today's climate. So next week, education fair, learn about the Christian schools, just just, uh, a week to think about education in general. That's April 25th. Moms of Preschoolers Night Out, the 27th. So this group, I I think, is really just a great group. And the children, uh, in this case, will be at home with dads or grandparents or babysitters. This is a night just for the moms of preschoolers and love what they're doing, building each other up in faith. That's going to be the evening of the 27th. You know anyone in that category, or if you say, I have a non-believing friend and it's kind of a lonely season of life, please, uh, please make note of that. Okay, VBS volunteers. Providence has a legendary, uh, a legendary vacation Bible school. And we last year sadly had to postpone because of all that was happening, but we're going forward this year. And so that will be June 14th to 18th. But in order to do this well, we need a lot in the church, many of us in the church to serve and participate as volunteers. So June 14th to the 18th, if you say, you know, I can give half a day uh, to build into these children, many of them probably non-believers, please do uh, mark that off and be in touch with Don Garrett. We're we're going forward with Vacation Bible School and, and we need your help. Finally, young professionals, we're thankful for these, uh, those in this category have been coming to our church and they've uh, taken their own, uh, on their own initiative to say we'd really like to have a young professionals group. This will be Thursday, um, the 29th. And so it doesn't matter if you're married or single. I say, I joke, this is the, um, for a lot in our church family, what the sociologists call dinks. You know that double income, no kids, uh, life is good. Uh, but if you're in that category, you say this would be a great thing to come to, the young professionals, the first ever, and Pastor Ian's involved. So those things being said, um, we now will turn to the most important thing in the world, and that is what God has done in Jesus, uh, who is our real king and to whom we owe, uh, to whom we owe everything. So if you would, uh, we'll, we'll join Matthias here. Thanks, brother. Let's stand this morning as we sing out the truths of God's word. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, hey. 
repentance can sometimes, we think of that as being uh, just what you do when you become a Christian, whereas actually repentance is the very posture of a Christ follower. That it is uh, what we try to do every week, that is to exalt the Savior and to humble the sinner. And so what we'll do as Christians have through for many, many centuries is that we're going to say a communal confession that it's up on the screen. I'm going to give a moment of silence uh, to have you read it over. Obviously, if you, if you don't feel that way, don't say it. Um, but it is, I would say, again, if you're a Christ follower to say, you know what, we have fallen so far short of his glory, but thank goodness for what God has done in Jesus and that we're cleansed by his blood. So if you would turn your attention to this confession. So now, if you, agree, if you agree, would you posture your hearts and we confess our sins together. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us to amend what we are, and direct what we shall be that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen. Aren't you thankful today for that truth to say, you know what, we're redeemed by a great Savior. And uh, we're, uh, again, that his blood avails for all those who confess their sins and who turn to him alone. So that being said, we, we uh, worship him in that truth. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust.
Well, before we uh, go to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word. Would you uh, bow with me? Bow your hearts. Lord God, what wonderful words to trust in Jesus. May it be so, Lord. Day by day, minute by minute, may we trust in you. Father, we come to you this morning with gratitude. You are good, always. Your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations, as the psalmist wrote. May we serve you with gladness, Lord, and come into your presence with a joyful heart this morning. Teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. May we do so in truth and not just in word or body posture. So Lord, we humbly bring our request to you this morning. We lift up our marriages, our friendships. Father, you desire for your people to be unified. Lord, would you strengthen our marriages that are represented here? That we would seek to love one another, to cherish one another, to serve one another. Would you bless our friendships, Father? That we would demonstrate the unity and the love um, that you desire that we, the church, would protect our unity in the midst of much turmoil in our culture. Lord, you desire among your children that we would be unified using our different gifts for your purpose. Lord, we lift up our church, our very selves, as we look to, to reach the world for you. Father, help us to be mission-minded. Would you enable us, each of us, to live out our calling, to share your good news, to encourage those around us, to meet the needs of those around us in the name of the Savior? Father, you call us to care for the widows, the orphans, those most vulnerable, to speak up for those who have no voice. We're to love our neighbors as you have loved us, Please make us, by your spirit, people of compassion, hospitality, and service. Lord, help us to love you well by loving others well. Lord, we lift up those who are recovering from surgery or illness in this congregation. Uh, be with them. Strengthen them. Father, help all of us to see your purposes that are displayed in illness and complete dependence on you. Strengthen those who are suffering. Father, thank you for Ian Shire. Thank you for his uh, new role as he moves towards uh, more discipleship and teaching. Just thank you for this dear brother. And we pray for our new pastor of worship that you would bring the right individual for this task, uh, for this joy to serve alongside us. So Father, we give that to you and just pray for your leading. And Father, as we go to your word this morning, we ask that you would open our minds to your truth in our hearts to joyful obedience, humility, and faith. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. And if you're able, if you would please stand as Cindy reads from God's word. She'll be reading from Luke chapter 7 
verses 1 through 17. Thanks. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may be seated. Thank you, Jim and Cindy, and I'm sure all of you have seen the headlines, as I have, about the diminishing numbers of those who would identify with any religious tradition. I'm sure even a few generations ago, if you would have told you know, somebody like my, my grandparents' generation that uh, not only would Christians be in a minority, but those of any religion would be in a minority in America, they would have been stunned. But that's exactly where we find ourselves. But we have to see that that means that those of us who really believe this, and which is, I hope, everyone in the room, we really believe it, uh, that we've really got to know our stuff. That in a post-Christian culture, right, that you really have to be committed uh, to the Lord Jesus, right? If most of the people that you, um, you know, interact with think that you're thinking that Jesus is Lord or that the Bible has an authority over our lives, if they think that that's flat out weird, we really have to know it and believe it. And I don't think it would be a, a bad thing, having, having lived in Western Europe for six years, you say what you'll find is the church is numerically smaller, but the people who are there really know it and believe it and are committed to the Lord Jesus. And I hope that that's us, that we see that, say, well, maybe we are uh, a small remnant, but we really do believe Jesus is Lord and he is all that we have. And today in our passage, what we'll see is it, it drives it, I think, that central question, right? What, what does God really want of us? 
that I get that question a lot. You say, well, there's a big God out there and all of us. What is it that God really, really wants? And today we're going to see that. And in these chapters, right, Jesus has called his disciples. He's teaching his followers what it means to follow him. That's what the word disciple means. It means, you know, follower or learner, maybe better. You know, what does it really mean to follow after Jesus? And he starts um, this action back in chapter 4 with something very stunning. You remember, he enters the synagogue. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He winds up the scroll, and you know what he says to all the Jewish leaders there. He says, actually, this scroll of Isaiah is being fulfilled in my ministry. A stunning thing, 700-year-old text, right? 700 years, Isaiah had been around before the time of Jesus. They've all been looking around, saying, who's this person who's gonna come and do all this great stuff? The Galilean carpenter comes in and says, you know what, I'm here. And Luke begins to build his case. God and Jesus has broken in in a new way in Jesus. And that, after all, is why we're here. And today we come to this centurion in chapter seven, and this centurion is gonna give us a wonderful view of what it means to be uh, followers of Jesus. What is it that God is after? And if I can just leave you, say, I don't wanna leave you, but if there's one thing that I just say, you, you walk away with nothing else today, just look at this contrast at the end of verse four, when the Jewish leaders want uh, this uh, centurion uh, to get Jesus's attention, you see what they say, he is worthy. But then jump down to verse six, what the centurion says, I am not worthy. Say, so today our attention is going to be on those two lines. The inclination of all of our hearts to say, I'm worthy. But the real faith that God wants is for us to see that actually we're not worthy. That's where the action's going to pivot. And again, I hope that we get a good view of what God wants. So what's going on here is that this centurion, as the word would indicate, right? The word centurion, it's built right in there, would have been responsible for 100 men. This is no small task. Now, whether or not he's, you know, Roman, as is probably likely, or Herod himself, who's kind of the puppet Jewish king, he had guards too. Nevertheless, this man oversees 100 other people. And these battalions, right, or these groups of 100 men are what made Rome famous that they were uh, nimble and uh, you know, disciplined, and the centurion was responsible for that. That The uh, Roman historian Polybius has this famous line where he says, anybody who's a centurion has to display great mental fortitude, that they've got to you know, kind of run into battle. They really have to know what they're doing. Say, this man would have been uh, rather impressive by worldly standards. We could say that he's a part of the establishment that a, a man of stature, somebody would have recognized, had a real command of other people. But more than that, you say this centurion was more than just impressive by those guidelines, but he also had some political tact, didn't he? I think these days we'd call this high EQ. You say, how do you know that? Because the Jewish people really liked him. You say, now here, you know, again, a, a swell of other, you know, non-Christian literature talking about how centurions, you know, really had contempt for the Jews. I mean, they, you know, they're the colonizing power. So, you know, you just, uh, these are the people, you know, the kind of, you know, the little minority group you're overseeing. A lot of contempt from Gentile centurions to Jews, but not this man. Say, this man cultivated a real relationship with the Jewish leaders. Say, he was gracious even to those 
who didn't, uh, you know, maybe agree with him on a lot of things, and again, whom he oversaw. Because you see what happens, that he's got uh, a servant who's sick, and he dispatches the elders of the Jews to go and consult Jesus, and they respond, again, verse 4, they came to Jesus and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. So he's a man of means, a man of political tact, knew how to work the room, so to speak, and the minds of all the Jewish leaders, right, is how our minds work, is that worth and uh, having people do things for you is really based on your achievement and based on all those worldly things that I've just been talking about. So that's the default position of the mind, to say, I'm actually a pretty good guy. Look at all this great stuff that I've done. Aren't I clever? Therefore, you're going to do this for me. So, you know, say bold heading there, number one, right? That the elders tell us about how all of our minds work. That is worldly thinking bases worth on achievement. You know, to use that older phrase, right, that we're all respecters of person. You say, isn't that a great phrase? In other words, you say, if I see two people in a room, I think I'm going to gravitate towards the one who, you know, might be better connected or might have, you know, a bit more money or who might, uh, you know, be able to get me places. We have that great word now, right? Networking. Say, who wants to network with somebody that's, you know, beneath you who has fewer connections than you do? You say, no, the whole point of networking is basically so I can be a respecter of persons and go towards the person who can get me places. And I want to kind of climb that ladder because this is the way the world works, that my worth is going to be attached to my achievement and whether or not I can work the room. That seems to be what's happening here. And again, I think the science really backs up that all of our minds work this way. You say, just a ton of studies, say, for example, on how... Uh, in individual, what they call nonverbal posturing. So when a person enters the room, they don't have to say a thing, but their face shape and how they carry themselves, there's a high correlation, we'd say connection to climbing social hierarchies, right? Say just something by a way a person looks, we're that shallow. You say we're that shallow to give that kind of a person the promotion because they fit the type. Say study after study. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, who I, you know, I don't know where he is spiritually, but he's very interesting to read. You know, writes for the New Yorker, and I consider him a kind of friend of the church, the kind of things he'll talk about. But in his book, Blink, you know, he does this, this study of, of CEOs. What he ends up saying, he says, you know, about 3% of American men are, are, are six foot two or taller. It's a pretty small number. But nearly 60% of CEOs are six foot two. You say, what's going on there? Are they better able to lead? No, actually more likely is that we're respecters of persons and we're actually quite shallow. That we think the way the elders do. This guy's a good, you know, a good guy. He looks out for us. He's got some means. He built our synagogue. Therefore, Jesus, you actually owe him. He's worthy to have you do this for him. You see, this worldly thinking, we're going to base our worth on our achievement. Now, stunningly, that this centurion sets us straight, doesn't he? Let's lock in on him a few minutes, and I think we get a view at verse 2. There's something very unusual about him in verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Say, this is a remarkable line. Why? Because your, your servant, if you're a centurion, was, was your property, was another commodity. Uh, you know, you, you have a commodity and it 
breaks down, you know, out it goes and in comes the news. This is again probably how your average Roman centurion would have thought of your slave. But not this centurion. He highly values his servant. Say, is it too much to say that he's, you know, a respecter of human life? Or at the very least, there's something different about how he treats his subordinates. I say, I pause here as a sidebar, you know, as many of you are, are business leader, many people in our congregation, men and women are business leaders, you manage a lot of people. I read a lot of leadership books, you read a lot of leadership books, and here's what I say, everything I read in those books, I'm always like, that's, that's in the New Testament. Uh, it's, you know, Dale Carnegie say, where have I seen this? But you know, it's in the New Testament. So I just challenge you, if that's you today, read through these first 10 chapters of Luke 7 and see how many leadership lessons you can get. And say, starting here, just this centurion, what makes him a bit different? is that he actually carries, cares about the people that he's overseeing. <laughs> you open up your leadership book, it says, make sure you, that you don't just treat the people as cogs in the machine, but that you, you care about them. You say, well, it's right here. And, you know, the centurion special because he cares about his servant. You know, something else about him, again, is he addresses Jesus as Lord, not to make too much of a deal of that, but again, you do the comparative literature thing. You say the earliest Christian creed is Jesus is Lord. And why this was so antagonistic is because the Romans all said, what Caesar is Lord? So that really fired him up, but at least he's going to say there's something special about Jesus. You know, he, he's to be addressed with, um, you know, r- r- real respect. I, I think in a word, what we see then is that when this servant, uh, this centurion, excuse me, this centurion is seeking a uh, Jesus' help. Then that line in verse 6, again, he, is, he says, I am not worthy. Can you see the contrast there? All the voices of the people, like, look at how swell this guy is. You know, isn't he great? Look at how clever. He's really worked the room. You know, he's, he's worthy of having Jesus help him. And what does the centurion say? He says, I'm, I'm not worthy. What this is, is what we could say is a self-confrontation that here's all the press that's building me up and feeding into my pride, but there's another voice in the centurion that says, you know what, I'm actually not a great guy. And there's something different and higher about Jesus that I actually need to come underneath. Say, we so lack that self-confrontation today. We so long for other people to tell us how great we are and then base, you know, entitlement off that kind of thing. You say, how very different is this centurion? Not listening to any of that, but to say, I'm not worthy even to have Jesus come and I don't want to take his time. Very, very deferential. Now, else, uh, additionally, take a look at verse 8. Not a lot of commentators talk about this. I've always been struck by verse 8. And here's why. For I too, says the centurion, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and, to, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And they say at the the very simplest level, what he's saying is that if this happens on the level of the Roman army, where as a centurion I can give orders and they're followed by my soldiers, how much more so is that the case with with Jesus, right, who's a lot more powerful than I am? So he's just using a a small example to give way to, you know, working from the minor to the great, they call it. So that's clearly what's happening. He's saying, look, I understand this because I'm a Roman soldier. I give orders and they're followed. How much more so by Jesus? But there's another angle of this that I think is so very important for the Christ follower. Do you notice how this centurion, he says, I'm a man set under authority. And then he proceeds to give examples of how he exercises authority. You see, what's the connection there? Say, I'm a man under authority. 
And I say all this stuff and they do it. And here's why I think this is so profound and why the Bible always draws me in in so many different angles is because we know this, that authority is never demanded, but rather it's conferred. You say, all of us now, again, going back to those leadership books, who wants to work for a leader that doesn't think he's accountable to anybody? Who wants to work for anybody that thinks that, they, that, that their you know, position has not been granted at the very least by God himself? You see, this whole notion now that's everywhere in the news about accountability in the workplace and accountability in leadership, you say, doesn't it come right from the centurion here that he's wise enough and smart enough and emotionally intelligent enough to say, you know what, I too am a man under authority. And that's why when I exercise authority that I know that there's real accountability and how I'm able to treat my subordinates the way that I do. Very important for Christians that God has set us in the positions that he has. None of us are free movers. And the second that we become prideful, you say, down we're going to go. May we learn that lesson. So this centurion is different. Calling Jesus Lord, looking out for others, understanding, you know, that his authority is even given to him. And just think then, just think of this great contrast. So you're a bystander that day, at this point in Jesus' ministry. Who's the more impressive figure to you? Say, so I know my answer. The centurion. Way more impressive. Oversees a hundred men, highly competent, a leader of people, the Galilean carpenter that's got a few fishermen around him. Who's teaching all these weird things? Say, isn't that where we at? So we gravitate towards the person who's impressive by worldly standards. You say, that Jesus, he's really going to hurt my reputation. You know, you know let's not get too close. Centurion says, you know what? I'm not worthy. Jesus is worthy. And that's for all of us, again, to learn this lesson. Again, think of the pivot, right? Worldly thinking is going to base our worth on our achievements, on working the room, climbing social hierarchies, all that stuff that we know about. Centurion wants to get us into our mind, actually, we're not that great and we're not that clever and we need God's help. Now let's move it into to, um, you know, where we're at now culturally. Here's a definition from a Christian psychologist that I very, like, very much like. He says, humility involves a reasonably accurate view of oneself, a concern for others, and an openness to various ideas. And that last bit about openness to various ideas simply means that there, there are some things that I say and think that I might be wrong about. That's what that means. You say, well, actually, this, this grid, this very modern definition of humility from a psychologist, doesn't the centurion, he gets pretty close. He cares about other people. He's entertaining, even as a Gentile, that Jesus is Lord and that there's something special about him. It's a good emotional intelligence to know that he's not, you know, the, the greatest person in the world. You say, that's what we're after, right? It's not self-loathing. It's not humility. It's not just the opposite of pride. But it's about realizing that there's something greater in Jesus and that I need to submit to him. Now listen to this. 1950, the Gallup organization runs a poll among high school seniors. And one question, are you a very important person? Say 12% of high schoolers in 1950 say, I'm a very important person. They run the same survey in 2005. 80% say yes. 80% of high schoolers, probably more now, would say, I'm a very important person. You know, David Brooks, again, I don't think a Christian, but maybe a friend to the church, he calls this the big me. 
So I'm very much a product of the big me because I remember public school, you know, this was kind of, you know, 101, repeat to yourself over and over again what a special person you are. I mean, I remember my, my elementary school, you know, uh, you know, principal kind of leading us all in chants about how special we are. The great self-esteem movement, like, look at how great you are. And because you're so great, you're entitled to all this stuff. And Jesus has to do this stuff for you. So it fits right into our mind. And what I find so very sad about this is can you see how this movement of thinking that we're all really important, it's like barbed wire, you know, it's a, the, the more you kind of go that way, the more entangled that you get. Why is that? Because here's what happens, is that not only then do I start seeking approval from others, right? Because I've got this idea myself that I am the most important person in the room, and I need all of you to agree on that. You see, this is the, 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 the again, the boomerang of worth, is that worth can't just be claimed. In other words, worth has to be conferred and agreed upon by the outsider. So I can't just say, look at what a great person I am over and over again. And when I start to do that, what are all you thinking? You're thinking, actually, this guy's supremely prideful. We don't want to have anything to do with him. So the more that I try to you know, tell myself that I'm, I'm a really important person, actually, the worse it becomes. And then that gap between who I'm telling myself I am with, you know, the, the, the reality, you know, say that creates anxiety because, you know, there's a self that I've imagined and then who I really am. And I'm in the meantime trying to get all of you to like me and this approbation lust. You see, it's a terrible way to go. How much better is the centurion? Actually, given the opportunity, I'm a really selfish person. I get a lot wrong. If you all knew me like God knew me, you would not be here today. That's the truth. And when you yield to Jesus, you say the freedom comes, doesn't it? It's who I really am. I'm not worthy. I'm not trying to fool anybody. Lord, I surrender to you. You know, you're not a Christian today. Glad you're here. We have, I'm always loved that we have non-Christians every week. So you think about this movement, right? You say world's rendering of this to say, you better prove yourself because your worth and your entitlement's based on how well you're able to, to do these things and you know, you're fitting into the big me culture and you want to think you're a very important person and that's just creating more and more anxiety. Say, can you see there's a better way today? There's a better way actually saying, you know, I, I actually am sinful and then I've incurred God's wrath by doing my own thing and trying to make everybody else impressed that that's you know, deeply sinful and deceitful and what I need to do is actually turn my life over to Jesus and to accept what he's done for me, that he's cleansed me, and that by his blood that I'm forgiven. You see, the action is very different, how distinct the Christian message is in the culture in which we live. And if we are Christians, you say, again, we get sucked into this vortex, don't we? Again, our thinking is to be respecters of persons. But again, think about this, who's worthy and who's not? And the Lucan theme, right? If you had to give Luke a, a theme, what he repeats, right? The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted, exactly like the centurion, right? That he probably had, by worldly standards, a lot to boast about, comes underneath Jesus, submits to Jesus, and Jesus exalts him. And that's what happens in verse 9, then. Look at verse 9. Jesus, when he heard these things, the belief of the centurion, believing uh, in what Jesus could do. He turns to the crowd, doesn't he, in verse 9. Amazingly, he marveled at this centurion, and turning towards the crowd, he gives a sermon. He uses the faith of the centurion as a sermon illustration. There's one of the few times we say, <laughs> Jesus marvels at this. What is it that God wants? He wants humble faith. 
and say, the centurion, what exactly does the centurion believe? I'll have you look at verse 7. I don't presume, Jesus, for you to even be near me, and I don't want to waste your time, but just say the word. So I think that's the key right there, that the centurion believed in Jesus' word. He trusted him. Luke's readers and all of us were in the same position, aren't we? Say, I wish I could bring Jesus up to preach, you know, here in body. Say, no, Jesus has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. And so we're those who uh, have been left with his word. Say, doesn't it please Jesus for those of us who are his to take him at his word? to believe in him, to delight in his word, right? The, the revealed word of God in scripture, the person of Jesus, say that's what makes him marvel. That's what we're after here, the centurion trust in the power of Jesus' word. And I think this is the connection. And so far as we have time to go to the second narrative, as incredible as it is, you say not only Jesus' compassion is a thematic connection, but notice again how Jesus' word works. So what's the scene the son of a widow dies. Very sad scene. It's a funeral procession, right? Her only son has died. Her husband's gone. You say in the culture that she's got absolutely nothing. Jesus comes up and would otherwise be cruel. He says, don't weep. And he grabs hold of this bed that the young man's on. And what's he say? Young man, I say to you, arise. The point I want us to see is how easy it is how very easy both of these acts are for Jesus. One little word. One little word and the servant is cured. One little word and the dead man is raised. You say, whatever is troubling you these days or you're upset about the survey, the Gallup survey or the way of the, you know, the government is going or the Equality Act or all these things, we could say, actually, I've got the word of Christ. And that is way more powerful than any human institution. I think Luther had it absolutely correct in, in a mighty fortress, right? He says, the world with devils filled, there's a whole lot that's gonna scare you. But one little word from Jesus fells the devil. You remember that line? Say, that's absolutely true. Say, we have Jesus. Do we trust him and his word? And then you see, I think there's a little bit of all of us in this second narrative. You love verse 15, does it move you? <laughs> the way Luke tells it. <laughs> And the dead man sat up and began to speak. You think about that. The dead man sat up. Say, I've stopped thinking of the world as believing and non-believing. You say, maybe, yeah, sometimes that's helpful. It might be more fruitful for us to think of the world as dead and living. That all of us, before Christ quickened our hearts, you say, we were dead in our transgressions. I'm trying to earn the approval of other people, trying to achieve everything, trying to, you know, get myself to be entitled. You say, this is the path that I was on. I was a dead person walking until Christ quickens the heart. And he told this de dead man, you say, you live for me. And I hope every Christian, you say, yeah, I am that person. I'm flat on the mats. I'm doomed, you know, kind of on a crash course, that hell-bound journey. Until the voice of Christ comes in, right, and says, actually, you're not worthy, but I've died for you. And now go out and live for me, that you're alive in Christ. Do you see that? That all of us who are Christians, right, that we were dead in our transgressions, but we've been enlivened and regenerated by him, say that's what this is about, the word of Jesus from the outside, giving life to his people so that we're not living in the misery of this game of just earthly materialism. So again, friends, I think whatever is happening on your minds today, you're dejected, you know, you're afraid, to come back to this great truth, to say, yeah, the world plays the game, of achievement, that that's where worth and entitlement is. And we want to say, look at well, how great I am. I'm worthy. 
centurion reminds us, say, actually, I'm not worthy of God's love in Jesus, that Jesus is supreme and pure, and that as his word comes down to me, that I'm enlivened and I can live for him. That's, you say, what does God want in our culture? As we shine, he wants our humble faith in who Jesus is. That's the punch of the passage, right? Humble faith wins the day. I hope that's all of us, that we learn this lesson well to say about worth and unworthiness and to realize that only Jesus is worthy. And as we submit to him, that's where real life and real value and real worth lies. So that being said, I'll invite Matthias and the team back up. Lord, thank you for preserving this, um, this story of the centurion. That one day I think we'll meet this man in glory. And how very relevant the passage is about uh, in, a, in a big me culture, right? The big me culture that says I'm, I'm ingrained to think of all the, all the great things that I've done and how everybody owes me something. And today to just have such a, uh, such a different view that there is only one who deserves the title of being worthy. And that's the Lord Jesus Help us to come under him in humble faith. And Lord, in a time where your word is mocked, and certainly in a time when those who gather and turn, we turn our attention to Luke chapter 7, that a lot of people would think this is just a, a crazy thing to do. I, I, I want it to be very clear here that what pleases you is when we take you and trust your word. And then help us, Lord, to see then again that this is where real life is, that there are two very clear choices, to kind of be caught in our own ways and anxious and fretting and or to turn to you and to surrender and live for you and to find out this is where real freedom, real purpose, real meaning is. Help us to represent your kingdom well in these times. May Christ be honored. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude and sing those very truths that we were once dead in our sins and are alive in Christ Jesus.
that hellbound race, all we have is the Lord Jesus, who said in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That those of us who are in Christ, we pass from death to life, that we live for him and represent him and delight in his grace. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, honor, dominion, and authority through all the ages now and forevermore. Amen. May we go in the Lord's strength. They'll never be ashamed. 